So uh, first of all, for all of you who are here, but also for those of you who are watching by streaming video, I want to welcome you to this uh, a panel on perspectives and update on China. Um, by the way, uh, I will introduce our, our, our two panelists here, but I want to say that uh, it's not that common for us to have a repeat a panel, but uh, this panel, particular panel, uh, last year was so popular that we thought we would, uh, uh, you know, to uh, bring bring the panel back. Also, uh, I think it's I can say with a great deal of confidence that a lot has happened in the last year. So, uh, uh, so what they'll talk about, obviously, uh, a lot has changed uh, in the years since our last conference. So, uh, anything they say now will certainly be a new perspective on what has uh, what has developed. Um, First of all, I want to just introduce our, our, our two uh, panelists. Uh, Alma Chen has had a long, long history involved in investing in China. Uh, she was part of a partnership that invests in some very, very successful companies in China. And, uh, and uh, then uh, uh, she, at uh, the same time, started SubChina a number of years ago, which is without question the leading uh, information company, com uh, media company related to China. Uh, they, I encourage you to visit their website, uh, which is uh, uh, as uh, news stories and, uh, and et cetera, but also they have uh, uh, newsletters and publications that I think you can find quite valuable. They also uh, do have you know, uh, consulting services, so forth, that they, they provide as part of, of what they do. Uh, so uh, Alma is the CEO and founder of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the company. Uh, Jeremy uh, is the editor-in-chief uh, and uh, not only writes many of the articles that, are, you, you, that, that you have access to, but he also is uh, one of the, uh, uh, they have a uh, podcast series which is really excellent where they interview people, uh, leading people on different topics, and I encourage you to, one, visit their website, two, if you need some problems that, you know, that intersect with their area of expertise, use them, but certainly, uh, you know, sign up for their newsletters and publications and their podcasts. So with that, uh, Thank I, you, I, yeah. <laughs> what, with that, what I want to do is, what we, we talked about what we wanted to cover and I think what we decided was that we would try to cover things that are not necessarily always on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. In other words, things that, that they know quite well uh, that are not necessarily pub, uh, covered extensively, but also are very relevant to the kinds of decisions uh, that all of you have to make. Uh, so. Uh, and, 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 and what we're going to do is we're going to go through four uh, questions. One is, what is happening inside of China that really matters, whether it's political, industry structure changes, government policies, et cetera, uh, because it's not so obvious to people on the outside. Second, what are the attitudes between the U.S. and China and internally in China? Because uh, we certainly are quite familiar with how the U.S. views China, but it's not as clear to outsiders how the Chinese view the U.S., but also what the internal attitude is inside of China. Uh, and 
The third is what are the implications of all these factors for non-Chinese companies? And we're really going to split into three categories. One is what are the implications if you're operating or investing in China? Second, what does it mean if you're competing with Chinese companies? You may not be in China, but you're competing with Chinese companies. And third, what does it mean competing in, in you know outside of China? And then the third is what if you're an exporter into China? So what are all of these changes, uh, uh, what the implications are for those? And last, uh, we'll give a little update on the trade spat with the US and their view of what's currently happening and, and what we can expect. We put that last because that's reported on uh, pretty widely, but of course they have an interesting point of view. So let's start, and, and I guess the first one is, What's happening in China that really matters? And we have political, e economic, industry structures. Maybe you can start wherever you wish, and whoever wants to start. Well, you go ahead, please. Okay, so um, politically, uh, we're really seeing a continuation of what we've seen previously under Xi Jinping, which is that uh, the party rule is being centralized even further. They just completed the fourth plenary session of. Uh, the 19th Congress of the Communist Party. Um, it, it, the meeting took place a little later than uh, it typically does, and there was a lot of speculation about why, and as usual, none of that speculation actually meant anything. Um, there, were, there was only one new um, piece of rhetoric in the document they published afterward, uh, and that was about Hong Kong, um, saying that um, uh, the security situation of Hong Kong has to be dealt with, but giving no, no details on that. So I think politically, we're looking at more Xi Jinping. He continues to centralize power in his own hands. Um, he continues to emphasize ideology and loyalty to the Communist Party. Um, and this is going on at the same time as a, a renewed um, emphasis on uh, getting rid of Western political influences uh, at universities um, and you know within the body politic essentially. So I, I guess that's the one one of the big political trends, which is certainly not new, but uh, it has continued. Uh, if, if I may year. add on that point Please. before you get on your own, but he knows much more than I do because he's the well. editor in chief and <laughs> I do admin. <laughs> I do I do look uh, at uh, what's going on in China. So just to add to Jeremy's point what's going on within China and what they're focused on are three things. Poverty alleviation, urbanization, and national security. So those are the three things that Xi Jinping really cares about. So what that means is poverty alleviation, they still have 150 million people making less than $5 a day. And you know you hear about the billionaires, there are 850 of them there, 550 of them here, but there are a lot of people who are very, very poor, which is why GDP per capita in China is only 10,000 plus, which is close to Dominican Republic and Costa Rica, whereas the U.S. GDP per capita is about 65,000. They have extensive programs actually to, to explicitly lift people out of poverty, right? Well, I, I, and it is, you're right, I mean, it's something that Xi Jinping has emphasized pretty much from day one as, yes. as a major priority. Right. Right. I, I have one uh, question to ask you about the political thing. You know, there are a lot of people, outside, if you're outside of China, people tend to think of the Communist Party is one party and they speak with one voice and so forth. The reality is there are also factions within the Chinese Communist Party and government and big debates within. To what extent is that 
uh, getting worse or not getting worse, and what are the implications? Particularly, I know in the trade area, there's huge amount of argument internally within China, the Chinese government, about which way to head and how much to give in and not give in, right? And that's influencing these negotiations, right? Well, you know, anybody who claims to know what Xi Jinping talks about with his senior advisors is lying. Um, so we, we don't really, really know uh, details about, you know, the, 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 the factional disputes that must be going on. But I think what, what is pretty clear in the last two years is that there is less and less room for any kind of dissenting opinion. The boss man doesn't want to hear anything different. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, I mean, I think that's where the danger is uh, mm -hmm. in, in China right now. Um, there is one other thing I think we should say, um, uh, sort of almost a countervailing trend, which is one that I've been very um, hesitant to say is real, is financial opening. Um, but it does seem that this year particularly, they've really um, you know, started to put their money where their mouth is in terms of letting at least the financial industry in, in a way that just wasn't possible before. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I would have to say, you always have to have a huge caveat with China, because just because they mean you can open a company, doesn't mean you'll actually be able to run the business or run it profitably, right. um, but that, that's new. So just want to elaborate on Jeremy's point, and that is correct that foreigners are now allowed to own up to 100% of the companies starting next year, which was one year earlier than they had expected. And one doesn't hear much about it, but already J.P. Morgan and Goldman, many of the... But this is the financial community, right? It's not only finance, it's insurance, yeah. including credit cards. Of yeah. course, now they delayed the credit card approvals for so long, and nobody uses credit card in China because WeChat and Alipay have taken over. Yeah. But uh, it's allowing quite a few industries. How about the industrial side, though? Because obviously the audience here are people who are in the chemical industry. Are they, is anything likely to get better in terms of either intellectual property protection or the ability? You know, I know some companies have been able to, like BSF, is able to 100% own a new facility. But what's happening there in terms of industrial ownership and in, in the IP? The official uh, rhetoric hasn't mention uh, um, uh, you know, non-financial opening, at least not uh, in any very obvious way. The last year, all of the talk about opening to foreign businesses has been focused on the financial industry. Um, that's certainly part of the trade negotiation, though, right? Yeah. Right. And I mean, I suspect that's also why you've seen some rather rapid action in the last year, is because you know, there's, a, there's a, a need to um, look as though you are doing something. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but I think there's some skepticism about how much progress and how, you know, in the speed with which they'll make progress. And I think uh, outside of financial. Right? And I want to go back to the faction topic, because there are a lot of factions within China. And in fact, while Xi Jinping may project the uh, allure of being a very strong man, mm -hmm. but in fact others may criticize and say he's actually very insecure. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, whoever his contender might be, he's locked them up. You know, he's, last time it was 250, but now apparently 350,000 people have been locked up. So everybody that's his enemy or <coughs> imaginable are in jail. Well, lock them up seems to be a favorite phrase in the U.S. politics as well. <laughs> so why not in, uh, why not in China all the time? Lock them up, right? Uh, on the economic side, you know, there are all sorts of different, there's all sorts of reports about what's going on. 
the, the consensus definitely is that the economy is slowing. What's not so clear is how much and can you rely on the you know, on the on the on the government statistics or not. You know, I think the two of you interact a lot with people in China. What's the, your sense? Uh, is it is it is it a lot worse? Or does it vary according to sector? So it seems to be twofold. Uh, some have said in Tianjin they're definitely in a recession. Mm -hmm. Last quarter, corporate profits were down 15 to 25 percent, uh -huh. but now the estimates of this quarter is going to be down like one or two percent. Mm -hmm. Things are actually picking up, and so overall this year they may actually come in about a little bit about six percent. Mm -hmm. And so you wonder how how does you, you have to question whether the numbers are a little bit doctored up. But uh, Fitch ratings and many of the others, movies, et cetera, have all downgraded for next year mm -hmm. to about 5.6 to about 5.9 percent. So forecasts are definitely coming down. But having said that, the slowdown that we experienced in the last quarter, they're seeing a little pickup this quarter and then another slowdown. Towards, um, so it's a little hard to tell. A little hard, hard to tell. But, but <coughs> definitely a slowdown. Yeah. And especially because these factories have moved out. Vietnam is full, but mm -hmm. you know, much of the manufacturing has you know, I don't know. I, I, I mean, part of my job is to read the like financial <coughs> press every day, and it, it's you know, today the markets are up, tomorrow they're down. Oh, there's going to be a recession this year, tomorrow there's not. Oh, the Chinese economy is look, um, you know, some index of industrial production has gone up and then the next day there's some job number that indicates the opposite. It's, it's, it's very difficult, but I mean the talk is definitely gloomy um, from, uh, and the one um, sector that perhaps I have more exposure to you than the other, uh, other people in this room where I've noticed uh, it's very noticeable is uh, technology in China. You know, uh, there there's a lot of talk of a tech winter, a venture capital winter. Um, some of it, I think, has to do with the fact that these hyper-growth companies that were perhaps not based completely on reality, like you know the Uber and WeWorks of the world, the, the Chinese equivalents, um, like Didi. You know, they're slowing down because you know we've realized that you know their business model involves a fair bit of snake oil and we haven't quite figured out <laughs> how they're actually going to turn themselves around. So, I mean, some of it is, is the sort of hype of the sharing economy, I think, that is, is, is coming down. But it's not just that because, um, you know, uh, people at big tech companies are worried about layoffs. Um, and companies like, you know, JD have laid people off. You know, they've closed down divisions. They're, they're talking about having to approach uh, the world in a different way than they, they had to in the last decade. So, 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 so can I just be, say a few more yeah. things on that point? So very much uh, in line with what's happened with Masayoshi San's vision fund. You know, once he found out that his investments were uh, not optimal and you've seen the downgrading on the river, very much the same. The, uh, there's a frothy element in the VC uh, investment world in China. The amount that was invested into China VC by the U.S. is equivalent to how much the Chinese invested. It's close to between 15 to 30 billion. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very big, really robust market uh, with very frothy valuations. Uh, but what happened is that they, China has now just crossed in the last month more unicorns that were generated in China than the U.S. this past year. Mm -hmm. And they continue to try to IPO here because the terms here are much more favorable. You know, the, after you IPO the lockup period, it's 90 days or you know, 180 
Yeah. Versus in China, it's one year or three years. Mm -hmm. Market value, you don't have to have a big market value, whereas in China, you need 14 billion US dollars equivalent. So China is trying to change those rules to keep those uh, very attractive tech companies locally so they don't have to come to NASDAQ or the US. Yeah, and they've opened up new exchanges and so forth. Star, star uh, exchange. Yeah. So, so maybe some of the things that are that are happening to the Ubers and the WeWorks and so forth here are spreading a little bit in China, but, but not as much, right? Yeah. Now, one other thing is, uh, within China, at least there have been a lot of reports that the Chinese government is favoring the state-owned enterprises and uh, being less favorable towards the private, which is a bit sad in a sense because the private companies and well, the, the non-state-owned companies have been the most efficient and have created the most growth, and the state-owned have been the least efficient and, and so forth. Now, is that true, and, and, and what impact does it have for those people here who are private involvement with China or, you know, have some kind of business relationship with Chinese companies? Well, um, you know, the, 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 the first time that, that um, line of thinking uh, became um, sort of common amongst the punditry, at least, was actually before Xi Jinping, when Hu Jintao was still the top guy. Um, it was, I think, as long ago as about 2008, I first heard the word uh, which means the, the country advances and the people retreat, mm -hmm. which is a description of this phenomenon. Um, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that um, the state sector has the full support of the Communist Party and that, um, you know, despite um, some sort of bromides about reform at the beginning of uh, his tenure, um, she is, uh, you know, I mean, he's an ideologically committed um, communist and he is totally fine with the country owning the biggest companies. Mm -hmm. So. Um, my sense is that uh, they're pragmatic enough that you know we're not seeing anything like an, you know an attempt at nationalization or, 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 or anything drastic like that. Um, but they're favoring, uh, but on an ongoing basis, yeah, which is unfortunate because yeah. the companies that have been most competitive have really been the private right. companies. So the, right? all the ROI, ROE, ROA, the yeah. private companies have much higher yeah. returns than the uh, state-owned enterprises. And not only that, um, uh, unfortunately, the funding has gone to the state-owned enterprises, but yeah. they're realizing the private companies are the ones that you know provide eighty percent of the employment and you know uh, create the, the wealth uh, of China. Really comes from the private. So they're they're really not favoring the real economic change. But they're recognizing that, and they want to make the changes. I mean, it's been a huge disappointment because that was all about reform when Xi Jinping came on. Uh, four years ago that they thought this reform was really going to take place and it didn't happen. Um, right now the focus is on making sure that the smaller banks are reforming and maybe Jeremy could talk a little bit more about that but we've had a few bankruptcies in China yeah. and uh, in the fashion In fact that was my next question like every year people say oh the Chinese government, the Chinese companies have a huge amount of debt you know oh, way more than even what is published and is known and so forth. There was an article recently in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal saying the same things, that when the state-owned banks, you know, were a little stingier on lending to the local governments, they went out and borrowed anyway from other sources, right? 
So now this could be one of those things that every year everybody says it's going to collapse and it doesn't. But do you have any sense of that, or is it just really impossible to tell whether it will reach some, you know, some, some tipping point, right, in terms of debt? Right? I don't know, you know, people have, you're right, the tipping point, when is the tipping point, predicting the tipping point, I mean, I, I don't know if you're all familiar with a book called The Coming Collapse of China, written by Gordon Chang in 1999, I think, um, he still continues just about every year to rehash his coming collapse theory, but it always gets pushed a few years down the road, and I feel a little bit about like that about the, the sort of idea that one day China's just going to implode in this enormous ball of debt. Mm -hmm. um, um, firstly, because the government has a, a lot of um, means at its, uh, disposable, uh, at its disposal to um, you know, avoid a truly catastrophic event. I mean, if you own the companies and the banks and the local governments that owe each other the money, you have a few ways to sort this out, right? <laughs> Yeah. And they have a savings rate that up till recently was like 50%. Yeah. But the younger people now are spending much more and um, using their credit may, cards. Maybe this is something in terms of like big things that are happening in China that I think people should be thinking about, which is this, that we are faced with a gen the first generation of mainland Chinese who don't know how to save, and they spend like American kids. Uh, and they've it's never... That, it's that bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's worse, I think. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it is that bad. Um, and um, they You're have the never... they are buying the Hermes bags and the Gucci bags. Yeah. Right, yeah, just on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and these kids have never known, uh, not only hard times, they've never known a time when next year wasn't better than last year. And not only that, they're not taught any of that revolutions in their textbooks. So they don't know about yeah. the cultural revolution or right. any of that. So when I think about the coming possible collapse or end of the Chinese economic miracle, what I contemplate is, you know, what happens if you have a really serious slowdown for a year and you have, you know, two, three generations of young people who are not mentally equipped to deal with this? Um, that's what I kind of worry about in the big picture. Um, so, so, a lot of debt, but just really not clear when it may hit some crossing point. Well, three, over, some have said that it's over 300%. You know, up till about a year ago, it was 200 something, but it's now possibly over 300% of GDP. Is that? Then debt, yes. Yeah. And, but the reserves are still ample because they still have a higher savings rate. And the reality is that the government, certainly for state banks, they can just convert debt into equity, right? And, and they put it off balance sheet. Yeah, so, so that's a mechanism. So now the third rail question, Hong Kong. What what's going on now, and you know what do you think is going to happen to the extent you have an opinion? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, I'm, I, this is an interesting question because we've talked to different groups of people and had some fairly different responses. I think. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm sorry to be the pessimist in this room. I'm pretty pessimistic about everything right now. But um, uh, it uh, seems to me that you have a two, you know, an immovable force meeting a. And what is the saying? You have two forces that there doesn't seem to be any way that they will compromise. Um, there's no overlap between. There's no overlap one, between one is demanding and the other one's willing to give. Yeah, and I, I think that um, the protesters either don't know or know that in some ways what they're doing is futile, but they're going to do it anyway. 
Um, what I think is a serious problem in the Hong Kong government and in, in Beijing is a complete lack of a willingness to recognize that there are factors here aside from economic. So everything they propose is build affordable housing, you know, integrate Hong Kong with the greater Bay Area and so that you know, the economic prosperity of Shenzhen flows over. They seem to think that this is that the, the it's Hong Kong is homo economicus and nothing else is going to get them off the streets, and I think they're really deeply grievously wrong about that. Well, certainly one of the big problems that, that created this is that the Chinese government followed a policy when when they took over Hong Kong. They said, okay, if we just make the billionaires happy, then everything will be fine. And what happened though was that. The creation of jobs wasn't fast enough, and the other is the billionaires who controlled all the real estate just built very expensive housing, and so the vast majority of the middle class, so forth, they got they they, they basically difficult time because housing became so expensive. So you had a large group of people who basically weren't getting the new jobs, and they and they were getting squeezed economically, and I think the Chinese government just miscalculated. They they didn't realize that. In fact, and, and right next door is Shenzhen, which is prospering, and you know, right next door, and with you know, better economics and so forth. So the contrast was a disaster for the people, for the Hong Kong citizens who were not billionaires, particularly the young people. And so, but on the other hand, is this going to be another Tiananmen Square or not really? Well, I just want to say that the profile of the protesters have changed radically because in the beginning you had much larger numbers, a million to two million, and it was everybody from their parents to the grandparents, and they were bringing five-year-old kids out of the street, and it was very peaceful and very organized. But now the radical group and slightly younger group has remained, and now they've become very violent. And instead of asking for the five things, you know, extradition, et cetera, et cetera, now they're asking for democracy, which we know they're never going to get. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that if you check the IQ, which countries rank the highest in IQ, Hong Kong ranks as number one or number two. And what a waste of brain power, mm -hmm. you know, because Hong Kong people are so well educated mm -hmm. and are so smart and so intelligent to waste this time six months protesting, uh, to me, is very, very personal. Yeah, it's hard to see what the ending is of all of this, right? Yeah. But the Chinese government can't afford to have another Tiananmen Square, but they, they, they what do you think, what are you going to do? I, I think they're going to carry on doing what they're doing just right now. Well, a bit more than wait it out. Right. They're sending in thugs to beat people up and harass That's people, stab people. Uh, they seem to be... Uh, I mean, you know, it's people from Hong Kong reporting that their mainland is inserted in, in, in the police. Um, they're going to make it difficult for companies. So you saw, you know, Cathay Pacific having trouble and uh, the um, CEO having to resign, essentially, because of uh, pressure from Beijing. Uh, and I think that that's going to continue. You know, any co company that has uh, staff associated with protests, they're going to start... Um, finding life difficult in, in one way or another. Well, then that's a natural segue to our second se section of questions, which is the attitude section, right? You know, the demonization of the China in, in, in the U.S., China's view of the U.S., but also within China, what the attitudes are. And I think this is a special category because the two of you have some insights that are not so obvious to those of us who live you know, here in the U.S. about what the, what's happening there 
and then what the implications are. So, Anna? Okay, I'll go first. Uh, so last year, when Pence spoke and uh, made that speech October 4th at the Hudson Institute, that was a pivotal moment because that was the first time that he quote-unquote demonized China and said that they were being unfair, they weren't being equitable in trade, they were stealing. Uh, and, and at the time, it seemed very harsh. Now, a year later, that government-to-government -government talk has filtered down the demonization of China. Then it was business-to-business, -business, and then we had this whole MBA incident recently with uh, uh, Daryl Morey and uh, Shaquille O'Neal, and uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. And now they're saying, now the people are saying that if you're an American company doing business with China, you've got to choose. Do you want the money, or are you going to have ethics and vote for democracy? So it's gone from government, business, and now people to people. And it's not infrequent when you talk to an individual who doesn't know too much about America, let's say the Midwest, or maybe even Connecticut, they would say, oh, doesn't China. Doesn't know too much about China. It, yeah, they would say, oh, China, they're so evil. You know, they're bad, bad people, bad country, and the demonization has become very rampant, and which is a very unfortunate thing, because within China, Xi Jinping is the popularity, and, and Jeremy was uh, pointing out to me that they really don't have an official poll, but about 90% of the people are very happy. They're happy with Xi Jinping, they're happy with the way the, the country went, because now they have food, they have jobs, they have security, they have a future, their children have a future, and they're very happy. So there's a huge gap between how we see China, the average American, how Chinese see China. So how, how do the Chinese view the U.S.? The population, but more importantly, the government, right? Because the, the government's view is critical for what a lot of these people do, which is operating China. Right? Well, well I, I think the events of the last 18 months have convinced them with a great deal of reason that the United States wants to contain China's rise. Um, I think that's the consensus view in Beijing now. Um, and why wouldn't they believe that, honestly? Uh, it's not an illogical conclusion to draw from everything that's going on right now. And at that Pence's speech, he cited, and somewhat, I wouldn't say wrongly, but he specifically said China has this Made in China 2025 program and strategy, which says 90% of the world components, et cetera, have to belong to China. And uh, a little bit off mark, off the mark, but since then, China realized, you know, all they were trying to say was, we missed out on the Industrial Revolution completely, you know, because Mao was busy melting pots to make bullet, bullets and uh, bombs. And so, and we have been humiliated so much from World War One, World War Two. never again, we're going to not miss the next revolution, which is a technological revolution. And we want to be really good, not so much beat the world, but be really good at it. And so now, so many millions of students are graduating each year in STEM, and they want to excel. So Made in China 2025 was a goal that they had for themselves, but really misunderstood by the West. And so they decided to keep quiet about it. They don't, it's never mentioned anymore, but they're still moving ahead with that internal plan. Oh, even faster. Maybe you know, even I mean, faster. I'm sure, undoubtedly faster. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're Huawei and you, uh, you, know, you don't know when uh, you're going to, uh, I mean, right now you can get some stuff from the United States, but you don't, that's only on, you know, by Trump's grace. You don't know when that'll be cut off. I mean, you, you're going to be doing everything you can to be absolutely independent of America. And I mean, I think if the, the la lasting effect of the, the trade war and, you know, the sort of um, set of aggressive policies towards China has been, number one, the agricultural market is gone forever. 
you know, American farmers can say goodbye to, to that market. They're never going to buy in the same quantities that they, they're, used, they're used to. The other thing is that in technology, there's a new urgency to the quest for self-reliance. Um, uh, self yeah, so ironically, and there are different opinions about this, but ironically, some of, some of these actions may have accelerated the Chinese advancement, right? I mean, Huawei Absolutely. wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. need to develop a substitute for Android if it weren't for the fact that they're being blocked, right? So mm -hmm. now they're accelerating that progress. So it could be a period of victory, right, by excluding them from uh, U.S. technology companies and, you know, selling to, to China. <coughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, the sad thing about the demonization of China is it's really quite bipartisan, right? It's not just Republican. The only bipartisan <laughs> consensus in this country, the only thing that both parties agree on, literally. And in some cases, from China's view, the Democrats are even worse because they still have human rights and affirmative action right, right, right. on top of everything else. Yeah, which is really, unfortunately, only in the sense it's too extreme, right? Mm -hmm. right relative to what, 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 what the reality is. So if, if you... I, I mean, um, and I also, I do feel I have to say that if we use the word demonization, yeah. you know, I mean, the, that Beijing isn't helping itself <laughs> in recent years, you know. When you run concentration camps for a million people in Xinjiang, I mean, I, 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 I as somebody, I mean, I correspond with people every day who give me a hard time about what we cover about China, um, either because we're too soft on Beijing or because we're, you know, bashing them them too much. I mean, it is very difficult to maintain an e a steady uh, and cool view on China right now. There's a lot going on, and some of the things are very horrible. Um, Let's talk about the implications of all these things for non-Chinese companies, so for the people here in this room. So let's start with the first one, and that is, you know, what are the challenges or the implications if you are are operating in China, or you're thinking of operating in China. I know one place we could start is you were talking about the apology list, right? Uh, for example, as an example of the, the, the challenge that's, that, that exists for companies operating in China. Mm -hmm. So Jeremy and his team put together an incredible video that I hope you'll all watch. And uh, we put together a list of all the companies around the world that have apologized to China for either forgetting to mention Taiwan, Tibet, or uh, Mongolia, or having mentioned it the wrong way, <laughs> or whatever it is, you can't be right. So, you know, they're constantly apologizing so they don't lose that billion dollar market. Yeah, it's um, a long list. It's a long list, about 30 of them. Well, we haven't had to apologize yet. <laughs> Not yet, so, no. Peter. So. Uh, the chemical industry, though, perhaps you um, are lucky. Um, I mean, the apologies usually come from like a T-shirt from a fashion brand that you know lists Hong Kong in the same status as other countries, that kind of thing. You know, chemical industry isn't one that happens on Twitter really, which, for which you're quite lucky. <laughs> yeah. You mean they don't sell polypropylene by uh, social Tweets. media? Not as far as I know. Maybe, oh, maybe, maybe I'm. <laughs> I'm just shocked. I can't believe how backward we are, right? Uh, so forth. So, uh, but you know, again, with all these changes, what do you? If you if you were the shoes of some of these CEOs here, and say what's all going on? What are the? What would you say were sort of the four or five most important implications of all, the, all these things, good, bad, or just 
not good or bad, but you know what you have to do, right? Well, you're getting pressure on both sides because Trump has said one, at one point a few months back that he wanted all U.S. companies to come out of China, and China, American companies, I'm sorry, American companies to come out of China. Right. American companies in, in aggregate make about three hundred seventy-five billion dollars in China, mm -hmm. so it's a very profitable uh, operation, and so you have to keep that in mind. And then on the other hand, the Chinese. Uh, at least now in the financial insurance and credit cards, they're opening up and they want to be the, you know, uh, at one point Bob Zelig said, you know, can China be the stakeholder? Can they become the world? A responsible stakeholder. Responsible stakeholder. Uh, I, I'm not sure if China can, but they want to be. And I mm -hmm. guess two, two or two and a half years ago at Davos, Xi Jinping said, you know, we'd love to be a responsible stakeholder. And they're trying, but will they be? We're not, I think the jury's still. So, so Jeremy, did you want to say something? I, I mean, I would say prepare for economic uncertainty or even possibly gloom and doom uh, in China. Um, and uh, well, the, despite all the financial opening, I think one has to be prepared for, um, uh, if you're an American company, for um, troubles that you never had before. Uh, oh, so you're, you're, you're saying if you operate in China and you're a non-Chinese company, there may be more problems and benefits going forward? I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, depends on the country that your, your company's headquartered in, but I think uh, Canadian and American companies, uh, you know, um, in certain industries have already felt uh, political um, punishment, you know, for, for, for things their countries did, not, nothing, not like these apologies. The apologies we were just talking about are companies apologizing because they printed a t-shirt with the wrong thing about Hong Kong, or, you know, somebody tweeted something. Um, this is a, a, you know, a different kind of a problem. Um, well, fortunately, uh, the companies in this room don't produce branded consumer products, but definitely in that case, there's been some backlash in China uh, against buying American brands, right? So I guess the fact that you sell polypropylene but you don't, you know, you don't put Louis Vuitton on it or something like that is probably a plus these days, right? Uh, but the challenges might be elsewhere. I, I would say, I mean, you have to keep an eye on the government, government policies. That, that would be the most important thing because, I mean, that can change overnight. And the chemical industry is one where it's one of the few industries where occasionally popular protests change it in China. That's true. You know? Uh, not insignificant number of plants like parazylene, that kind of thing. Have uh, the local governments have actually been very tolerant of, of, of um, popular protests, NIMBY protests, essentially. Um, well, you know, one of the things is, you know, I listed in the question competing with Chinese companies, but the reality is that one of the impacts of the tariffs is the Chinese actually lowered the tariffs from the EU and so forth, right, and, and so actually, in many respects, uh, there's increased competition from other Western chemical companies, etc., as a result of the lower tariffs. They're, they're paying lower tariffs, and then we're paying higher tariffs, right? So it's not just competing with Chinese companies, it's the relative competitiveness because of all of the, the, the relative tariffs that are, that are being uh, you know, uh, uh, levied, right? Uh, 
So uh, and that's a serious issue, I think, in all industries. I mean, if you look at what they're doing in agriculture now, you know, China is it's very clearly going out and seeking other s supplies. They just, um, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, they opened up China to Irish beef, which I think had been banned after mad cow disease some some years ago. Right. They're in talks with the biggest meat pa meat packer in in, in, in Russia. Uh, to, um, to buy more uh, Russian pork, um, same Brazil and soy. You know, these are s stuff they used to get from America, and they won't anymore. They'll get it from other countries. Yeah, actually, in the news recently, yeah. Trump was complaining because he said, "Oh, I thought we we had an agreement that you would buy 52 billion of, of soybeans." You know, and the Chinese said, "Well, we we didn't promise just to buy no matter what at any price." Uh, you know, it's got to be economic, but then they purchased a huge amount from Brazil. So, uh, but it's not clear it's, it's because it's low price or what. But, um, you know, that's, you know, that certainly made Trump mad, right? Because he just thought they'll just buy 52 billion, right? So it's, it's interesting. So, so all of this leads to a lot of uncertainty, I think, for a lot of companies whether they're operating in China, whether they're thinking investing in China, they're competing with Chinese companies, or, 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 or exporting product into China, right? So any of those categories has just be become more difficult, I guess, right? And so I think this last tariff, you know, the December 15th, if they go forward with that, um, and if phase one doesn't work out, it turns out that most of these companies actually are affecting multinational companies because they're the ones that are manufacturing it and uh, the assemblage is also done outside China. Uh, and so it, that particular tariffs is the, is the one that least negatively affects China. Yeah. So we hope that um, the phase one goes through very quickly because without that, Trump really doesn't have much of a more uh, bargaining power. More bargaining power, right. So the last question I want to ask before we open it up to questions from the audience here in the room and also online, uh, the trade situation. What's your take, on, what's your latest update on what you, how you see the China-US trade dispute, but all, and also, you know, what do you expect is going to happen? Okay, wow, yeah. I know you've never been asked this question. <laughs> Well, it's an unfair yeah. question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> like, okay. in our office on July 6 last year, when the first tariffs went into to, uh, effect, we said this is day one of the new Many world. Days, yeah. And I don't see an end to the count we're keeping of days since July 6, 2018. Um, I mean, I don't see how it's possible for either side to climb down uh, right now. I mean, from what we can understand of what may be in the phase one agreement, all it is is a cessation of hostilities. The US is no better, in fact it's worse off than it was before the tariff started. Um, nobody's got what they wanted. Um, many of the key US demands are simply politically unacceptable in China. And then of course the negotiator in chief is you know, a very erratic individual um, who I think is not suited to negotiate with Chinese people either because, I mean, you don't, I, there's a limit to how much you should 
accommodate Chinese people because Chinese culture is different, I think. I mean, in some ways, business is business, negotiation is negotiation, a price is a price. But on the other hand, I mean, there certainly is, you know, the cultural fact of face in China is, is a real thing. Yes. And if you want to talk to the Chinese government, you can't be insulting them on Twitter, you know, as they're going into the meeting. It just doesn't work that way, you know. They'd rather, you know, slit their wrists than talk to you after that. So I, I don't see, I mean, as long as Trump is in office, I don't really see how this can be resolved in a productive way. But I don't really see what, what's going to happen afterwards either. I mean, of course, that depends on who it is. Um, we, we, we started a, a, a democratic presidential China tracker on our website. And the idea was we thought China's got to be an important part of the debate right now. Right. It's such, it's, you know, aside from climate change, it's one of the things that everybody says this is the uh, AI, AI, climate change, and China. These are the three big issues that everybody's talking about. Not a single Democratic candidate has spent more than a couple of minutes on China. You know, and generally what they're saying is China bad. Yes, we bash China too. <laughs> you know, I mean that's basically the <laughs> substance of exactly, exactly the exactly almost. <laughs> so I'm I'm equally worried about what happens afterwards because there seems to be absolutely no coherence. You know, the one candidate who was coherent, we actually managed to get one of our um, reporters, got him on video, um, we published it last night, Andrew Young, who, I mean, he said something very sensible, which was that we have a lot of problems with China, but just, you know, uh, starting a new Cold War is an answer, which is, you know, very sensible. But of course, Andrew Young isn't going to become the president of the United States. So. I don't know, do you have any? Actually... Jeremy well, said it all. Yeah. Jeremy said it all. That's, that's a very precarious yeah, I think the other factor, which we can't ignore, is that obviously the impeachment inquiry is going mm. to have an effect. And that's obvious, right? So probably part of what the Chinese government's thinking is, let's see, it's about a year, it's a year before the next elections. We've got the impeachment inquiries, right? There might be some easing of the tariffs, or at least not putting on the increased tariffs. If, if we can live with the negative economic things that are happening in our economy for another year, maybe we have a different you know, president The other the, in the United States. The other part is that they're quite aware that to the extent that they give something to Trump, that Trump can declare, he, I mean, he declares both things victories, but you know, declare a legitimate victory, you just help him get reelected, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, this is speculation. I wouldn't be surprised that the impeachment inquiry is a big factor effect on uh, the trade negotiations. So, if anything, though, then it would reinforce your view that not much is going to happen, right? Because there may be some upside to see how the elections go in, in, in 2020, right? Yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. But, I mean, you, know, you just look at the noises coming out of the rooms. I mean, what kind of, I mean, what kind of clowns negotiate in that way? Where, um, you know, uh, promises are made long before any signatures uh, are, 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 are on the contracts, you know. Promises on both sides, promises you know uh, that are assumed that the Chinese have made that the Chinese have never said. I mean, how, uh, this is just amateur. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't think we talk enough about how amateurish this whole show is. Mm -hmm. Anyway.
So what I'd like to do is open it up to questions from the audience here, and also those of you who are online, uh, there is a chat function, and if you have a question, you can just type it in, and uh, uh, you, you know, Devin will be able to see the question and be able to uh, to read it uh, uh, to the audience and, and to our to our panelists. So let me start with uh, the audience here. Uh, Carlos? Yes, thank you. I have two questions. I have a curiosity question and a more of a geopolitical question. So the curiosity question is, are both of you uh, granted visas to travel into China? And when you travel into China, can you travel freely? That's the curiosity part. The geopolitical side is, in this bipolar world, who are uh, China's natural allies? And you know, what is their attitude to who their friends are versus you know what you think they have defined as who their enemy is. So, so for, those, for those, because they may not hear, okay. the, for those of you online, so you, I'll repeat it. One question is, do you have any concerns about traveling in China? And the other was, uh, are there any, ge what are the geopolitical allies of China today, et cetera, right? Yeah. Okay. So okay. we were talking about visas just before we came, walked in here, Jeremy and I. And I've been going to China since 1985, sometimes seven, eight times a year, and it's never occurred to me uh, about having any issues. But uh, I was in Hong Kong maybe three and a half weeks ago, and that was about the time we had the 70th anniversary. And we were officially banned last year uh, during Tiananmen Square, and uh, where we had about 7,000 uh, attackers on a cybersecurity uh, issues. And uh, when we came back on, uh, we had a lot of uh, emails and uh, congratulatory remarks from ambassadors saying, you are officially you're now an official media site, so congratulations. <laughs> so we felt you know, very encouraged, even though we were uh, uh, down for a while. But this time was the first time I didn't want to go to China because the, this was their 70th anniversary, and they were displaying hypersonic missiles and showing the military strength, etc. And I've never had a problem, but when I do go to China, my, my, uh, my phone and the uh, laptop turns black. So I know that somebody's watching me, and this happens twice. Well, they, they suck everything out. They suck everything out. <laughs> so I thought maybe I should be careful. So we've been thinking about the Jeremy felt exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in China for 20 years, and after I moved to the States, I'd go back three, four times a year. The last year or so, particularly the detention of the two Canadians, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but after the arrest in, in, on American request of the Huawei CFO, in Canada, China arrested on trumped-up charges two Canadians and is holding them on national security charges. And you know, I have a lot of mutual friends with both of them, so it is somewhat concerning. Uh, my own exposure to a lot of companies is that they're thinking very hard about whether their executives should uh, travel in China. They're also, I'm not sure if you're aware, but China has officially said that as far as they're concerned, whether you're a Chinese citizen or not, but you're Chinese ethnically, that they consider that they have the ability to detain you. So those of you who are Chinese ethnically, you might want to think about that. Uh, but Jeremy seems not to have that problem. Uh, uh, but, uh, but certainly in general, I think people are thinking very hard about whether their executives could 
should travel over there freely or not. Uh, ironically, the Chinese too, they have a red flag. They said, be careful, do not go to the United States because of all the shootings, you could come back dead. <laughs> so they, they, they think or coming or to the United States is a very dangerous place. <laughs> yeah. 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 Stay away from high school, it's church, and synagogue, list. and you'll be fine. Now, Carl's <laughs> second question was, the who are the allies of China today? Pakistan is the only ally China has. And then they have like their little kind of uh, misbehaving brother, North Korea, that is sort of like an ally, but not really. I mean, they wouldn't ever do anything for China. But I mean, Pakistan is the only all-weather friend China has, and in fact, the the they, um, the government um, has uh, stated that they, they do not want to live in a world of alliances. You know, and I, I it's unclear if this is just um, you know if this is something that what won't last if they actually start to develop their own allies. If this is just a way of criticizing the United States. But that is uh, something you see in Chinese uh, government rhetoric, that a system of military alliances is, is not good. But if, if you use a different definition, I think China clearly is trying to step into the void that the U.S. is leaving. So wherever the U.S. is, is, is stepping back, they're trying to at least step forward a little bit. The other is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the Belt and Road, you know, initiative. The investments in Africa. If you broaden it those, beyond those, alliance, that's, that's that's a different story where they're clearly trying to have influence. And I think they're doing very well uh, in much of the developing world and Europe too. I mean, Xi Jinping is in Greece, uh, is just yeah, leaving right now nice, and yeah. uh, ha having a wonderful schmooze fest uh, um, with the Greek president uh, and uh, who's been praising Belt and Road and. And they're about to have the RCEP so, and the AIB and you know, a lot of Italy alliances. Yeah. Uh -huh. So, I mean, you can see economic, I guess, groupings and, and I suppose you could call them friendships, mm -hmm. but only one alliance. Yeah. There was a set question. Yeah, there. it's just a clarification. So earlier you said kind of three themes, poverty alleviation, urbanization, and then catch the third one. Oh, yes. Uh, national security. National so that security. was that's the reason why they're going after making yeah. sure that the Uyghurs are in check. And it's so curious to me that there's not a single Chinese person I know to this day who think that the way they're handling it is wrong. Because they say at the end of the day, who has more deaths and who has more uh, sort of uh, terrorist attacks, the US or China? And they say, you have all these shootings. We have nobody, nobody dying from gunshots and everybody's safe. So that's the metric. And do uh, people feel they're making progress on the first two? So the third one clearly people Yes, the uh, po uh, popular alleviation I mentioned, uh, the uh, urbanization. Now they're up to about 65%. They want to get to, U.S. is about 75, 80%. And that is really one of their main things. They're trying to build another 100 cities over the next 10 years. 10 million people going to uh, creating more like suburbs uh, each year. And so there's this huge plan that they're, you know, for, with the environmentalists and et cetera, et cetera, to how to create cities and how to move people from uh, peasant-like situations. Yeah, I mean, these sectors. are astonishing numbers. It's huge they, numbers. A, a, a city with 10 million people is a big city, yeah. right? Yeah. And if you're creating a whole bunch of them, it's, it's pretty interesting. Now, let's take our first online question. What do you expect to be the impact of tariff surcharges on U.S. companies in terms of vendor negotiations slash passing on tariff surcharges to U.S. consumers? You know, I don't know if I really have the authority to answer that question. 
As I said earlier, this last phase of the tariff really hurts the U.S. much more than before. And it doesn't impact China as much because it's manufactured outside, assembled, and sold outside China. And well, so, and then it's finally, even though we don't see it yet, it's it's basically the U.S. consumers that get hurt the most. Yeah, because the tariffs are paid by the importers, importers right? Importers and it gets And it might be the you know, the Home Depots or whoever, right, uh, that that brings the product in, and then they're facing a dilemma, which is. Do you pass it on to the customer or not? And this is being, uh, this is being, these decisions are being made all across this country, in terms of where, where, what to do. I think a lot of a lot of companies are choosing not to pass on. It's very difficult to raise price significantly, right? And at that magnitude, so a lot of them are are only partially uh, passing it on. But it is a challenge. At the end of the day. Two people end up paying it. Either the company, the, the, the importing company, uh, absorbs that tariff, or the consumer, and the consumer being the U.S. consumer. So the last round of the tariffs really affected apparel much more. Okay. This last round is more electric, electric and electronic appliances. So it's and nice. furniture. Okay. And a little bit of furniture. Yeah, and so forth. Uh, any other questions from either online or, or in person? Yes, go ahead. You mentioned that the Chinese can't afford a Tiananmen Square incident in, in Hong Kong, but will they just let this continue for months and months and months? Well, I, I, I think they will let it fester rather than actually uh, roll the tax in. Uh, because that would be, I mean, if they had to, they would do that rather than back down. But that would definitely be the last. Um, uh, option because I mean it would be the end of Hong Kong as a uh, an open financial center and then where would you launder your ill-gotten gains so I don't think the you know <laughs> the government is they, they don't want that I mean I, I'm sorry I'm being a little um, flip that is one of the reasons why they don't want Hong Kong by the way to end. by the way uh, Jeremy Jeremy's uh, style is one of the reasons why his podcasts are really excellent he's <laughs> <laughs> very subdued First of all, they're excellent, and they generally interview an expert in it in different areas. Uh, 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 but also, uh, the, you know, they're really a lot of fun to, to listen to. Well, I just want to make a comment on that. Uh, when they had the umbrella revolution the year before, the Chinese government felt that they should have ended that much sooner. That because they didn't do it, so this this happened. Had they ended it much sooner, they could have contained this much sooner. But now things have just gone on for so long that they, they feel that if they came in with tanks, you know, Merkel has gone there and, and advised them not to. You know, almost every global leader has advised Xi Jinping that it would not. The whole world is watching him. Uh, having said that, there are initiatives. Uh, housing, you know, in Singapore, uh, public housing is seventy percent of their uh, housing. In Hong Kong, is only forty percent. So they want to increase that, and they are looking. They have already started to build homes outside of the. Uh, and uh, the other thing is vocational training. They want to provide vocational training, especially in the tech area. But we don't know how. Well, I don't think that yeah. those things. So, I mean, so it's too Jeremy late. Too late. Too late. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah I, I just don't. I, I don't think the. 
I, I think there's a significant right. group of youngsters who, who are way, way past that. Way, way past that. Okay, so he doesn't agree, but... I mean, I don't think that those right. things are going to mean suddenly people are like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go protest next right. week. Well, they want I'm democracy, so that's, that they're not going to get. In the meantime, by the way, I'm sure you're shocked to know that the billionaires in Hong Kong are moving their money out. I know it's a big surprise to you. <laughs> they've been opening up accounts and moving them because the rules still allow them to move a fair amount of, uh, of currency, which is, of course, not making the Chinese government happy, but uh, they can't stop all of it. Any other questions? Maybe one, one last question? Okay. Well, I mean, I'll monopolize. Uh, demographically, what, what, what's the outlook for China? Old before rich. Old before rich. Yeah, I mean, it's it's happening now. You know, we're, we're sort of crossed through now where the, the population is, you know, they're, they're um, I'm blanking on the numbers, but, but we're basically at a point now where it's going to, there are more old people and the labor force is smaller than the, the, the number of people who are going to depend on them. Uh, we're kind of getting there right now. So, so like Japan? Yeah. Exactly. But, but much poorer. But, uh, but, but not accelerated basis. And also, the Chinese government totally misjudged the following. They had the one-child policy, and they held on to that for a long time. And then they said, okay, we'll ease it up. And so a number of years ago, they stopped that. But they had gone past a certain point where suddenly the mentality of the young people was, uh, I don't want to give up a lifestyle. And if I have children, now I've got to spend my money on the children. I'd rather not have children and live a good, uh, good life. So the you know, birth, birth rate is still extremely low. So it's a tragic situation for the, from a workforce point of view, right? Because the speed with which they're becoming elder is you know, very dramatic. So uh, this is a problem that's going to uh, that's going to be a, a big problem, you know, fairly soon, right? The start, I think, yes. right? Yeah, so there are 34 million excessive male versus female, and now they're allowed to have two children, but nobody wants to have children, two children. I mean, I think yeah. it is already a problem. It is that a you problem. Seen, uh, the, you know, labor is no longer cheap in China. I mean, right. the, you know, the supply of poor young people is exhausted. Mm -hmm. so. Will that have any other impact on these <coughs> issues? Uh, I mean, on politics, on control, on how, how does that play out? They're pushing AI, so they have more robots to take care of. Their AI nurses take care of elderly. Yeah, I that that's that is a fascinating question. I don't have a good answer for you. But you might you might be able to get one yourself as you get older, but you have to learn how to speak Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> so I will tell you, it doesn't surprise me that this year's panel on China was as interesting, I think, as helpful to the audience as last year. So I do not regret the decision to inviting the two of you back. And well, thank you. That's thank very you, nice. thank you, Peter. I just want to say that on November 21, we have our signature conference called the Next China Conference. It will be held at the Appella Conference. I know many of you are out of towners, but you know, you're welcome to join us. Please go on our website, www.subchina.com. Subchina is not subterranean, but what's up, China? S-U-P-China.com, <laughs> and you can find the ad for Next China Conference, and we welcome you all. I strongly encourage you because they're a wealth of knowledge across the board. 
So whether you have a corporate issue that you've got to deal with, or you just want a report on a report on what's happening, so forth. Obviously, they're in an unusual position to have insights that are, uh, should we say, very different in a very positive way versus what you're going to get just by reading or, you know, calling up the traditional Chinese, you know, experts, right? 